This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Glad to be with you this morning. It was a historic night in Chicago as Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost a tight re-election bid for second term. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. Lightfoot is the first black woman to run the city of Chicago and the first LGBTQ mayor. She came in as a reformer and faced a challenge that no one saw coming, COVID-19. More recently, crime, a problem in so many U.S. cities today, took center stage. I am grateful to the millions of Chicagoans who came together as we made tough decisions, saw the struggles of our frontline workers, and beat back a deadly pandemic. I'm grateful that we work together to remove a record number of guns off our streets, reduce homicides, and started making real progress on public safety. Crime and public safety were by far the top issues for voters in the election, an election where Lightfoot finished third with just over 17 percent of the vote, a few percentage points shy of making the runoff. Regardless of tonight's outcome, we fought the right fights and we put this city on a better path. No doubt about it. Now, as we all know in life, in the end, you don't always win every battle. But you never regret taking on the powerful and bringing in the light. In Lightfoot's place, Chicago will have either former CPS CEO Paul Vallis, he's the top vote-getter with 34% of the vote, or Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, who pulled in 20% of the votes. Here they are speaking to their supporters last night. You turned our hope into reality because you believe that a better Chicago is possible. But guess what we get to do now, y'all? We get to turn the page of the politics of old. The city has never really been the city that works for everyone. But it will be when I am mayor. The runoff is just over a month away on April 4th. Joining us now to break down last night's results is Northwestern political science professor Jaime Dominguez. He's also with the university's Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy. Professor Dominguez, welcome. Thank you so much. Also joining us, WBEZ data editor Alden Lowry. Hey, Alden. Hey, Sasha. And rounding out our panel is WBEZ city politics reporter Mariah Wolfel. Thank you so much for being here again after a long night. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> As we kick things off, we would also like to hear from you. Lightfoot out. Vallis and Johnson are the top two. Are you surprised by the results in this very packed mayor's race? Give us a call now at 866-915-WBEZ. Again, our number is 866-915-WBEZ. I want to start with the same question for you folks sitting here in studio with me. Are you surprised? Because I thought for sure we were going to still be at least waiting to see who's in the runoff, you know, that maybe it would be a tighter race between Vallis, Johnson, Lightfoot and Garcia. What do you think, Professor? Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, the, well, the only surprise was just the surge, I think, of Brandon Johnson just in the last couple of days. Uh, but at the end of the day, catapulting think, right to the top. Absolutely. But at the end of the day in politics, it's all about the ground game. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw a well-oiled ground operation basically uh you know, uh, basically reach every corner of the city of Chicago and they got their voters out and we saw the result. Uh, last night, uh, in terms of Vallis coming down in front, that was expected. I mean, every poll, even the one we did at Northwestern, um, Vallis did come out in front. And yeah. crime was obviously the major issue. Any surprises for you, Alden? 
Um, and I wouldn't say in, in the overall uh, results that when you dig in a little bit, I was uh, a little surprised. I thought uh, I thought uh, Garcia would do a little better than he did. Um, uh, I was actually a little surprised at, at the, the mayor's um, uh, showing. I actually thought she she might have been a little lower. She was within uh, contention to uh, to get to the runoff. I didn't I didn't think it'd be as close. Mm-hmm. Um, and Johnson's numbers were a little higher than I thought they'd be. But I, I I thought for sure that he'd be among the top three. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Mariah, what about how quickly Lightfoot conceded? That was a, that was a surprise to me. I did, you know, Lightfoot is strong-headed and she really wanted this win obvi- for obvious reasons mm-hmm. and I was surprised about, you know, seeing her concede before 9 p.m. having said she called um both Vallis and Johnson. And uh, uh pundits were predicting that we would be recounting ballots and and we'd be holding off on naming winners until all those mail-in ballots uh, were counted. What happened? I think that um, they had they had many, many mail-in ballots that arrived before yesterday's election that they were able to count and put live as results uh, right at 7.15. It's kind of why we saw ballots surge so quickly in the night, because a lot of the high turnout for early voting and vote by mail was in um, wards where you would expect him to do well, in the 19th ward, mm-hmm. where a lot of first responders live, in the first 41st ward um, on the northwest side, and so... Um, you know, they're, they're still counting. And, and will the results of the, the remaining mail-in ballots make a difference, you think? I mean, you figure that the remaining mail-in ballots will be of similar ratio to the results we're seeing now. And so and so, while the election won't be officially called until, you know, March 14th, I think, is the date that the Board of Elections is pushing for, um, I, I don't think we'll see a change in these results. All right, let's go back to the beginning, Professor. I mean, we started out this election with a huge field of candidates, and a lot of folks figured the name recognition of some hopefuls, that that would be the winning factor. I mean, who else thought at least going in, the lead contenders were going to be Lightfoot and Garcia, right? Yeah, uh, definitely because of the name recognition. But in terms of Garcia, I think two things really needed to happen. Uh, The first is that he obviously needed to receive a majority of the Latino vote. That didn't happen. Secondly, they needed to have high turnout within the Latino uh, electorate. That did not happen. So that on itself kind of doomed him. And I think also the fact that um, his campaign just never really got off the ground. I think it has to do with the fact that, one, he came in so late, so therefore he wasn't able to receive the large, uh, the big endorsements from labor unions, SEIU, and, and the CTU, obviously. Uh, and so I think that um, really affected his ability to, to uh, you know, have, have a message, a substantive message about change and being the progressive that he was. Yeah. Um, so I thought that, you know, that, that needed to go his way. And Lori Lightfoot, I also expected her to maybe do a little bit better, I think. But it's very clear that there was just a wide disdain for the former mayor uh, across the seat in every corner. Yeah, Alden, the incumbent lost. This is the first time... In 40 years, let's chew on that for a minute. What does it tell us? Um, I think in the, in the case of Lightfoot, it tells us that um, that she came in not being a really known political commodity. So um, while, I mean, we were all surprised that she won by the level to which she defeated Tony Preckwinkle four years ago, which I think was more so about Tony Preckwinkle than it was necessarily about Lori Lightfoot. But Lightfoot came in with a fresh message, uh, reform-minded, a lot of tough talk. The things that people say, you know, kind of saddled her 
uh, time as mayor, uh, I think, was actually something that people really uh, kind of grabbed onto uh, when she was running as a candidate. Um, but she was also the mayor of this city during the pandemic. And, I, I you know, I, I got to think uh, I thought there were a lot of things that she did that were pretty smart and were refreshing that were along the lines of what she said she would do. And then there were things where she didn't go as far as she said she would go. Mm-hmm. She would go. But um, but it just had to be tough to be the mayor of any major city. I think during, any way you slice years, it, yeah. this yeah. term goes down in history. Right. Yeah. Um, only one other woman, Jane Byrne, has served as mayor of Chicago. She also didn't win reelection. Mariah, I got to ask the question out loud. Are voters less forgiving of women leaders? What do you think? I mean, my inclination is to say that um, women, I, I don't think it's a crazy thing to say that women are held to a higher standard in our society, particularly black women, as Lightfoot has said on the campaign trail. But I do think that she, like Alden said, came in with a lot of promises and objectively was hit with just unprecedented challenges, um, given, you know, including the, the COVID pandemic, a rise in violence. Um, and, you know, did not do herself any favors um, in her dealings with other elected officials, including Governor J.B. Pritzker, state's attorney Kim Fox. Um, you know, mayors wear a lot of hats, and one of them is as policymaker, and Lightfoot has a lot of accomplishments on that realm. She um, is bringing Chicago's first casino. She uh, found a way to make financially viable the extension of the red line. She started the city's first co-responder 911 pilot program that sends mental health professionals out with police. Um, but I also think last night's vote shows that demeanor also matters as a mayor. Um, a mayor is someone that voters that and residents look up to. Uh, they want someone who can set the tone for how we deal with difficult situations. And Lightfoot wasn't always great in that realm, as evidenced by her fights with the Chicago Teachers Union, which, of course, she was set up to kind of fail in that regard because the Teachers Union um, hates her, frankly, uh, and, you know, ran and supported her opponent in 2019. Um, but her dealings with the Chicago City Council, who voted, you know, with their feet by leaving um, and running against her in some cases. And so I think that that is uh, maybe not equally, but also an important factor for voters. Yeah. Professor Dominguez, I saw you nodding along there. Do you yeah. agree? Are, are women leaders held to a different standard? I think so. And then maybe people just expected just uh, quicker results. Uh, but we know in politics, it's uh, change is, is slow. Uh, um, and I think that, unfortunately, she didn't get that second term to be able to perhaps uh, um, massage some of those rough edges of, as, as Mariah was saying, in terms of her ability to, to govern, right? Because you have in a city like Chicago, that's such a heterogeneous mosaic of different folks of national origin, class, education. It's very important if you're going to project yourself as a consensus builder then I think that you, you know, you're going to win some, or you're going to lose some. But yeah. at some point, you have to come down to the center, and you're not going to always get what you want. Uh, but as Mariah was saying, uh, you know, she's headstrong, and I could just imagine for her, it was, it, it has been challenging, particularly just as a as a federal prosecutor, I mean, in a dominant uh, dominant male uh, industry. I think also, you know, she, I think that's what also made her tough, and I think that's what I think allowed her to become mayor in the first place. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The voters have spoken and Mayor Lightfoot is out after a single term as Chicago mayor. The top two vote getters, former CPS CEO Paul Vallis and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, they're heading to an April 4th runoff. 
Call us. Let us know how you're feeling about this today. Are you surprised by the results? Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. That is 866-915-WBEZ. We are breaking down results, upsets, and surprises with a panel of experts, Northwestern Professor Jaime Dominguez, WBEZ editor Alden Lowry, and WBEZ city politics reporter Mariah Wolfel. So, Alden, we're going to talk about winners in a bit, but I do want to stick with talking about the current mayor. Remind us of the mood four years ago when Lightfoot won. Um, It was... um it was a kind of engaging uh, time period. Uh, the seat was open. Rahm Emanuel decided not to run for re-election, um, so there was a lot of energy and excitement about you know who the who this this next person would be. We had fourteen people that actually made the ballot. There were even more that had, had actually tried to to get on the ballot, and we had a range of characters. Uh, um, Tony Preckwinkle was the name that that many were thinking about. Uh, Bill Daly was also uh, in that race, and people were thinking about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willie Wilson was back uh, again. Um, um, but uh, I, Lori Lightfoot was just this kind of unknown, but known in some respects. Uh, she had never, you know, held an elected office, but uh, her time on the police board, she as as leader of the police board, she you know established a presence. Um, and I think her campaign just picked up. Uh, yeah. uh, Tony Preckwinkle was saddled by all of the, the bad press and everything, uh, her relationship with Ed Burke. Um, and it, it's a very interesting thing because Tony Preckwinkle had been, when she was on the city council, kind of like this reform-minded darling. She was not a very strong presence in the standpoint of a direct confrontation with, uh, with Mayor Daley. But by the policies that she took and the, and the moments when she did stand up, she did establish herself as somebody who would buck the daily system, but, but do it respectfully in the way she was longtime alderman of the fourth ward and considered by many, you know, a lakefront and liberal minded backed uh, politician. And all of that support that she had built to become the Cook County Board president just evaporated in the in the space of all of the talk around um, the scandal with Burke and, and other things. Uh, and she had become the machine, essentially, yeah. uh, taking over the Cook County Democratic Party. And that was something that Lightfoot jumped on, and it really, uh, it really fit her 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 mode at that moment and uh, carried her to victory. Yeah, and we've we've talked about this today. We talked about it last night. The the unprecedented challenges that she faced. I want to go back to 2020 and her response to the COVID pandemic. I remember those memes. I, I I didn't quite live here yet, but I remember the memes of her telling people to stay home. You know, they, they were everywhere back in March and April 2020. Uh, Professor, what did you make of her in, initial pandemic response? I think like any other CEO of any city, it's just, it was just, um, you know, it was unprecedented. So I think she was just uh, like, you know, uh, any other mayor was just trying as best as possible to kind of assess the situation and not knowing exactly how to go about uh, addressing the pandemic and how to, to make sure that, right, that the city remain a, a, a safe for all citizens, but at the same time, like, you know, has to remain economically viable and competitive. So she had to basically kind of balance all those things. And, um, you know, um, she I think she did the best that she possibly could. Alden, you and your team, you tracked the COVID deaths by zip code and, and found staggering disparities in who was dying and where. How did the Life Administration work to bring resources to hospitals that were serving black and brown communities and meet the needs of the essential workers? I think that um, the Life Administration responded um, once 
you know, kind of the news was out about the disparate uh, impact on black and and then later uh, uh, brown communities in Chicago. Um, she had established, uh, I, I think they were called rapid response teams, and, and the notion there was really kind of being on the ground, partnered with, I want to say, a dozen or so maybe uh, community organizations mm-hmm. uh, to really kind of uh, be the city's eyes and ears on the ground. What do people need? What do they want? And then kind of putting together an infrastructure to try to deliver those things. Um, the question that we raised when we were looking at this uh, back in 2020 was, as laudable as those efforts were, should we have known in advance that this is how the pandemic would hit, particularly black communities, um, that maybe that some of that action could have been taken beforehand? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by the time this was news, we were into April and May, the death numbers were, were really staggering in black communities. And then later, the infection numbers were really staggering in Latino communities. And again, the question was, didn't we know enough about the way uh, folks live in those communities, the way they're detached from other uh, aspects of service delivery, that once we knew we had a pandemic on our hands, we should have been mobilizing resources to make sure that we could have got out in front of this thing. Yeah. And uh, Mariah, the mayor also faced high levels of civil unrest in the summer of 2020. On one hand, she was criticized by young progressive Chicagoans for how she responded to protesters, you know, putting them in what they said were unsafe conditions. And then on the other hand, she was criticized by the business community. They were saying that she wasn't doing enough to protect them from the looting that was happening. So who did she end up siding with and whose interests would you say she worked to protect? I think this was a lose-lose um example of Lightfoot's tenure. Um, You know, many activists will remember her raising bridges uh, to stop protesters from coming into downtown areas. There are kind of iconic pictures of those bridges that, you know, you see people tweeting like this is this is how I'm going to remember Lightfoot whenever I hear her name is how she, you know, prevented um, black and brown and 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 just activists from from, you know, speaking their truth during these protests. Um, but she also got flack from police officers uh, who said, you know, when when she like put out a call to report police abuse um, during protesters um, that they felt, you know, that she was siding with activists. And so it, it really wasn't a really she really didn't win uh, either of those sides, and that kind of continued to mark her dealings with both of those communities. Yeah, she was between a, a rock and a hard place, you know, because in an effort to deploy more police to respond to looting and protests, she ran into that overtime problem for, for CPD as well. So a lot happening there. She ran on police reform, Alden. How effectively would you say she implemented reforms? Um. Well, I would say that I, I, I would stop short of saying that she didn't. But um, but but I mean, I don't think there was any terribly meaningful uh, changes with regard to implementation of the consent decree um, or uh, demonstrable ways in which policing was done differently. Um, and there was a double edged sword there. Right. So in the while she came in with that uh, kind of stance behind her. Uh, she also, you know, was mayor during a time when, you know, we were seeing uh, crime and violence at a level that we hadn't seen in decades. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, the juxtaposition of uh, wanting to be uh, hold police uh, accountable, wanting to have a critical eye in the ways in which police are, are performing their duties, 
but then also wanting to look at how do we address the level of crime um, and violence that we were having, especially when we're seeing young people committing carjackings and other things like that. It was so visible and so dramatic. And ultimately, I think, was very clearly the issue that kind of brought her down. And it's the issue that Paul Vallis has kind of stood upon to kind of elevate himself. I mean, remember, this is a guy who only got like 5% of the vote mm. the last time he did this. And now he's, right. he's the clear, faraway leader at 34%. I think there's some other dynamics there as well. But um, but clearly his stance on public safety and being the strongest voice was the thing that kind of carried him. And ultimately, maybe the thing that, that might have deep-sixed uh, Lightfoot's uh, re-election hopes. All right, we're going to put a pin in the conversation for just a moment. We'll be right back with this panel. For more on last night's results, races, and we're going to look ahead to that runoff. All that and more right here on 91.5 WBEZ. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are back with more results from Chicago's municipal election. The voters have spoken. We're headed to a runoff with candidates Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. So what is that going to be like? Our panel with us this hour is WBEZ City Hall reporter Mariah Wolfel, WBEZ editor Alden Lowry, and Northwestern political science professor Jaime Dominguez. A reminder that you can join the conversation. Tell us what you're thinking right now, Lightfoot's out and Vallis and Johnson are the top two. Are you surprised by these results? Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. Again, 866-915-WBEZ. Uh, let's dig into the candidates, folks, who came out on top. So let's start with Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. Uh, Alden, Johnson started out the election kind of an underdog, would you say? Yeah, I, I think the by the very nature that he uh, was a Cook County commissioner, uh, I think very early on, uh, uh, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle had thrown her support behind him. And it was known that, uh, you know, his connection as an educator and everything uh, with the Chicago Teachers Union, that that would be something that would be helpful for him. But, yeah, he was just kind of a one of the names in the crowd. Uh, he and Cam Buckner in particular were folks that were like, you know, kind of these wild cards. Uh, it's kind of hard to figure out who they are. But then along in the campaign, I think maybe once he was able to get some of his uh, his uh, television commercials out, things started to pick up. And uh, you could see other candidates in the field starting to turn their attention toward him. We saw the mayor starting to be a little more critical of, of mm-hmm. him as well. Um, and uh, so he, he gained some momentum, maybe about I want to say maybe about mid-January or so into February, and, and, and that seemed to really do him well. Yeah. He even kind of referenced this in his speech last night. Let's listen. Two months ago, they said they didn't know who I was. Well, if you didn't know, now you know. Mariah, who is Brandon Johnson? Because I know folks have been following the election. Folks who have been following the election know who he is. But for those who aren't aware, what, what do we need to know about him? Well, Brandon Johnson, as you said, is a Cook County commissioner. He's also a paid organizer with the Chicago Teachers Union, a member of the CTU, a former teacher. He's a father. He um, lives with his wife and his kids in Chicago's Austin community. Talked about that a lot on the campaign trail, you know, um, tells a story about how, you know, talks about how he has a big incentive for, you know, solving the city's uh, violent crime, you know, that disproportionately affects the south and west sides because he is fearful when his kid goes on a bike ride, um, to soccer practice and those sorts of things. Um, You know, I think he, uh, some of his notable um, accomplishments on the Cook County board, one during the George Floyd 
protests, he passed a resolution, a non-binding resolution that would shift funds away from the Cook County Sheriff's Office. That's something Lightfoot tried to hit him on on the campaign trail. He also passed a law that... um, prevents people from discriminating against those with felony convictions on their records when trying to obtain housing. Um, But yeah, I think that, you know, in terms of name recognition, the CTU's endorsement really went a long way for him because Mm -hmm. it brought foot soldiers who were able to knock on doors, who were able to, you know, help organize the ground game that he did so well with. You know, he had a lot of house parties throughout neighborhoods that, you know, his supporters hosted for him throughout the city. Um, And it also brought in, you know, tons of funding. Uh, The CTU, you know, gave him uh, you know, around a million dollars, but then it also brings in endorsements from national organizations like the American Federation of Teachers, right. which also gave him a million dollars. And so I think that went a long way for him in, in getting and staying on TV. Now, Professor, let's talk about Vallis for for a moment here. Uh, Vallis gained momentum fairly early on, continued to build on that. But for folks who have been following Chicago politics for years, he's been known as an also-ran Right. Uh, what do you think pushed him to become the election front runner? I think he borrowed a, a, a page from the Republican playbook, playbook in tr- at the national level in terms of, of crime being an issue that people can get get behind. Uh, this, um, you know, um, really attacked this kind of defunding the police. Uh, and so I think for him that that I think is what pushed him to to be to be the front runner, essentially. Yeah. Um but I think also at the same time, I just want to just go back real quickly just to um, Johnson. Uh, Johnson, that I think, ironically, Lori Lightfoot really, I think, opened up wide in his lane, I think, over the last couple, three weeks, maybe, with her attack, early attacks on Chuy Garcia, because they were the two, considered the two most progressive candidates uh, of, of everybody that was running. And so I think that I those commercials, I think, gave progressive voters, perhaps, who were not Maybe I couldn't vote for Johnson, an, oper- a, a, an excuse maybe, if I can say that, to mm-hmm. actually vote for him and get behind him once people started to read the numbers as we were getting closer to the election. So yeah. just want to just state that. Yeah. And Alden, you know, uh, we talked about how Johnson won that endorsement of the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, which it did not go to, to Vallis. So what kind of relationship could we expect between Vallis and the Teachers Union? Um, <laughs> I expect it would actually be a, a fairly contentious uh, relationship. Uh, Vallis was one of the early uh, uh, proponents of, uh, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, the privatization of of public education. And um, if you're on that train, you are definitely at odds with the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, And uh, we've heard uh, in in his speech yesterday, Brandon Johnson uh, talk about uh, he he gave us a whole resume of uh, (laughs) Paul Vallis uh, and, and a very critical one at that, but he talked about his time in New Orleans, uh, and he m- made specific uh, mention of uh, the uh, charter movement that took place uh, post uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, um, which is a very sore spot for, uh, I think, you know, kind of public education, at least on the union side, uh, advocates across the country. Uh, same, uh, similar thing in Philadelphia as well. He made reference to so, uh, and all of that started during his his time, and it's part of his legacy here in Chicago. So, yeah, yeah I don't I don't think he's going to find very many friends uh, with the CTU. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think Vallis, out of all the nine candidates voters had to choose from, is the most hated by the Chicago Teachers Union um, because of his his you know um, preference for for school choice, which he says get you know he he argues is. 
um, you know, allows uh, uh, kids whose neighborhood schools aren't great to have another option. Um, the CTU vehemently, you know, rejects that explanation. But I, 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 I foresee a very contentious relationship between the two if Vallis were to become mayor. I think the CTU's contract is, uh, you know, up in 2024. So that's, you know, something yeah. that's on the slate. And education is going to be a huge issue for the next mayor as we transition to a partially elected school board. We have those school board elections in 2024 and a moratorium on school closings lifts um, in the coming years. And so Vallis has said he wants to close under-enrolled schools. Um, Johnson has said he does not want to. And so mm-hmm. you really have like opposite ends of the spectrum on on education and on crime between these two candidates. And and, and if you can comment, Mariah, on, on Vallis just as a, a coalition builder, right? Because we've said a lot about Lightfoot's demeanor that caused a lot of animosity uh, with among city council. Would Vallis be sort of a return to that familiar style of a, a mayor that plays the political game? Yeah, I mean, Vallis is a, I mean, I, I think his, I'm still getting to know his personality a bit, but he comes off as, as a likable guy. He comes off as a knowledgeable person in the room. It seems as though he would attempt to have a, uh, I don't know if you're going to say schmoozy or a wheel and deal um, relationship with the city council, which Lightfoot, and it's a point of pride of hers, did did not. You know, yeah. she said she manages to the 26 that she needs to pass legislation and she doesn't trade votes for favors. Um, and so, uh, yeah, no, I think that remains to be remains to be seen how he'll how he'll be in office as a coalition builder. If you're just tuning in, the voters have spoken. Yesterday was the last day to vote in Chicago's municipal election. And throughout today's show, we're breaking down the results, upsets, and surprises with a panel of experts. Northwestern professor Jaime Dominguez, WBEZ editor Alden Lowry, and WBEZ politics reporter Mariah Wolfel. Now let's hear from Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, who joins us by phone. Hi, Commissioner Johnson. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And, uh, good, good morning. It's still morning, right? I'm it not is. quite sure okay, what time of day it is anymore. It is. Congratulations <laughs> to you. How does it feel to be, you know, one of the two candidates in this April 4th runoff? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely humbled, um, certainly honored um, to have uh, the vote of confidence of, of people all over the city of Chicago, um, to know that people believe that a better, stronger, safer Chicago is possible. Um, that's exciting. Um, and that's something that I am, you know, greatly um greatly appreciative of and looking forward to the conversations we're going to have over the, over the next few weeks. And Commissioner, we just listened to a, a little moment from your speech last night, the part where you said that people didn't know your name and now news outlets across the country are saying it. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, to come from a family of, of working people, I'm one of 10 and my parents were also foster parents. So grew up in a working class home uh, with one bathroom and uh, just being squarely um, in the middle um, uh, in the family to be in a position um, to um, to run the city of Chicago um, is, is quite, um, again, it's very much an honor. And, you know, look, I've served as a public school teacher here in Chicago, started over 15 years ago, became an organizer pushing for education justice and housing justice. And to know that our movement is on the front pages of papers across this country. Um, that's a remarkable testament to the movement that, that really um, has propelled me into this position. As you mentioned, you're an organizer. So how are you approaching coalition building moving forward? 
Yeah, it's an important note because the city of Chicago deserves that. And, um, you know, look, I think, you know, being competent, collaborative, and compassionate are the best characteristic traits that you can have as a leader or just as a person in general. And so uh, I'm going to bring that unique skill set to the, to, the, to the body of government that has been dysfunctional for, uh, for some time now. I've served as a Cook County Commissioner, as you know, and I've used the same organizing skills um, to get, you know, a multi-billion dollar budget passed, working with 16 other colleagues, uh, a board president, at least 10, I believe, um, constitutionally protected countywide elected officials, um, again, to pass a multi-billion dollar budget while making critical investments without raising property taxes. Mm-hmm. And so you have to listen to people. You have to be prepared to, uh, um, to exchange ideas. Um, because all of the ideas that we bring together are ultimately there to solve the political problems that we are enduring and that we have endured for a very long time. So uh, I'm going to bring that skill set that I had um, growing up in a home with one bathroom, negotiating with my sisters and brothers, um, the same negotiating skills and collaborative skills that I possessed as an organizer and as a county commissioner um, to the fifth floor of the city of Chicago. And I'm confident that those skills will usher in a better, stronger, safer Chicago. Commissioner, you've got a lot of ears listening to you right now. So help us understand, what does a vote for you mean? And what is setting you apart from your opponent? Yeah, you know, look, you know, I have, you know, the lived experience of the day-to-day people in the city of Chicago. Uh, My wife and I um, will be celebrating 25 years of marriage in June, and we're raising three children in Austin on the west side of Chicago. We love it. And it's a beautiful community, but it is a, a violent neighborhood. It's one of the most violent neighborhoods in the entire city. We've lived through the experiences of families who are in search of a neighborhood school, um, and you can't find one. You don't have schools that are fully supported, and a family that relies upon public transportation that is, that's, that's in many cases unreliable. Um, I have a son who has asthma. I have asthma, and so access to health care and, and an environment that speaks to justice. I mean, these are the real-life experiences that people in Chicago are, are enduring, whether you live in Jefferson Park or Morgan Park or Humble Park or, or Garfield Park. And, you know, the difference between me and, and, and Paul Vallis, quite frankly, is it couldn't be more dramatic. You know, wherever Paul Vallis has been in charge, um, particularly of the finances, he has left a mess. In Chicago, um, he was in charge of the budget in the 90s when I was in high school. And the economic despair that we are living through right now um, is the result of his, his failures. Philadelphia is fired. New Orleans fired. Bridgeport fired. Chicago State, when he worked under Bruce Rauner, fired. Um, he has left um, economic despair wherever he has gone. And so um, I'm someone, um, in this case, I'm the only one who presented a balanced budget plan that eliminates the debt that he caused while making critical investments um, in our neighborhoods across the city without raising property taxes. I'm always going to tell people the truth. Um, and my skill set um, that's needed in this moment is a real reflection of working people, middle class families, and those who we need to pull up out of poverty. Um, that's the commitment that I have to the city of Chicago. And what I want for my family, I want for every single family in the city of Chicago. And I'm going to work hard to earn the trust and support those who didn't vote for me in the first round that we can have a better, stronger state for Chicago mm-hmm. by actually investing in people. Commissioner, we got WBEZ politics reporter Mariah Wolfel with us who's got a question for you. Hey, Commissioner. Thanks for hey, being on. Um, of course. Question. So you kind of just started to lay it out there, but in the next four weeks, I mean, what are you going to do to really lay out the differences between you and Paul Vallis? Is this, you know, TV commercials you're looking at? How are you, how are you going to pitch yourself? Hey, we're going to organize, right? And so that's a little bit of everything. That's uh, thank you for the space and the opportunity to engage voters um, through this, through the, uh, through the airwaves. And so of course we're going to 
Uh, we're going to run television commercials. We, we got a lot of positive feedback from those commercials. I appreciate um, how much people engage with those. We're going to be on the radio, but we're going to knock on doors. We're going to make phone calls. That's what the city of Chicago wants, someone who's willing to engage. Because the type of campaign we run is the type of governance that we'll have to run as well. And so I'm gr- grateful to have a multicultural, multi-generational movement all over the city of Chicago organizing. We had you know, 75, 80 House meetings across the city. Um, we've talked to 300,000 voters. We've knocked on literally thousands of doors, and we've had donors from around the country um, that, that, that contributed on the average of anywhere from 80 to $90 um, a, a, a donor. And so, yeah, we're going to do it all because that's what the city of Chicago deserves. And, again, you know, you know, starting off as a teacher, you know, just 15 years ago and prior to that, you know, working in communities like Cabrini Green um, as, a, as a child care worker as well, um, to be in this position, a middle school teacher, um, where we have built and captured the imagination and the hopes and the dreams and the promises, um, the size of the city of Chicago, where people believe that that's possible. Um, it's a remarkable task, but it is evident that anything is, is possible in this city. And so to have a middle child of a pastor, uh, my father was a, a carpenter and a, and a unionist, to be in this position where the city of Chicago would trust someone who has you know, spent his life um, serving young people and their families, um, that's a remarkable testament um, to the beauty and the diversity of the city of Chicago. And I cannot wait um, uh, to lead this city. And I'm so grateful uh, for the position that, that our movement has placed us in, the movement for environmental justice, the movement for education justice, the movement for reliable transportation, for affordable housing. I mean, these are all the things that people care about, and our platform is is reflective of all of those different dynamics. Right. And we built it together. I'm looking forward to leading. That's Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, who will be headed to the April 4th runoff against former CPS CEO Paul Vallis in the race for Chicago's next mayor. Brandon Johnson, thank you so much for checking in with us, and congratulations. Oh, you're welcome. You all were great. I appreciate the work that you all do. Our pleasure. A note for our listeners, we did reach out to Paul Vallis to have him on the show this morning as well, but he was unavailable. So we're going to keep working to bring you a conversation with him in the coming days right here on Reset. We'll take another quick pause for just a moment. We'll be right back with this panel for more on last night's races. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It is time to turn from mayoral results to the 50 aldermanic races on yesterday's ballot. City Council has seen an incredible number of retirements and resignations over the past year. About a quarter of the city's wards will now have a new alder person. So we're going to go through some of the notable races. But first, we will get our panel to have some reaction from what we just heard. Commissioner Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson joined us live here on the program. We're still here with Northwestern University Professor Jaime Dominguez, WBEZ editor Alden Lowry, and WBEZ politics reporter Mariah Wolfel. So, gang, before we talk about the aldermanic races, I mean, what did you think here? Do you see voters, Professor, coalescing around Johnson? Well, we'll see. I mean, he said all the right things. uh, And, you know, after yesterday's uh, victory, um, he has a right to do that. Uh, but I think the question is going to be now how he moves from uh, putting together an electoral coalition to a governing coalition, because that's that's a there's a big difference there. Uh, and uh, for me, it's going to be whether or not he can uh, disentangle himself from just, uh, you know, what the interest may be of the CTU. The fact when you have one large entity like that uh, funding you, uh, funding the majority of your campaign but you're going to have to respond to, to, to them as well. But, you know, you, it may come a time where the interests of the CTU and the 
larger interests of the city may clash. And so that's going to be the challenge for him. And then that's where I think his coalitions, coalitional schools are going to have to come into play because he's going to have to build consensus. And sometimes, um, you know, he may not get everything he wants, uh, but mm. that's part of governance. Alden, in 2020, there was a lot of discussion of how uh, generational differences in, in the black community affected the presidential Democratic primary and uh, discussions of uh, police reform versus abolition. So how significant is it that Johnson is working to build this uh, multi-generational movement, as he calls it? Um, he's got, uh, I would say he's got a little bit of a, a job on his hands. Um, uh, and it, it coalition, not just in terms of generational, uh, but also in terms of, of racial and ethnic, um, uh, the, the one thing that he doesn't have, apparently, that Vallis does appear to have is some semblance of a base. So we know the northwest and southwest sides were really big places where Vallis did extremely well. He also performed, at least in the numbers that we're looking at, reasonably well in, in Latino parts of the city. Um, but uh, but Johnson was not the leading vote getter among any particular demographic when you look at uh the uh, majority uh, race or ethnic group uh, at the precinct level, according to numbers that we're looking at this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, Lightfoot was the was was tops among uh, majority black precincts. Uh, Garcia, as expected, among uh, Latino precincts and and Vallis far and away uh, among white precincts. Uh, Johnson did well across the board. But so he's going to have to he's going to have to find people. Uh, in all of those parts of the city uh, to get behind his campaign. Yeah. And I also think the this this notion around public safety, um, he's in a tight spot because, um, you know, he's backed away from his very strong statements about defunding the police early on in the campaign. But he's going to have to give at least some segment of the population in Chicago a sense that he's going to have a plan to tackle crime. Yeah. And by the same token, um, he also wants the progressives uh, who have backed him to feel confident that he will stand on uh, reform and accountability um, uh, on on police as well. He's got a lot of work ahead so, of him. Yeah, he's, he's got a challenge. Mariah, shift gears with me to the aldermanic races, if you will. What does the future makeup of city council look like this morning? Any big upsets? Um, well, I know we've got a, quite a number of runoffs. Lots of races are going to a runoff. Um, I think my last count was around 14 were undecided and, you know, headed to, you know, potentially headed to a runoff once we get all vote by mail ballots in. Of the races that have been decided, no incumbent has lost their seat. Um, that's with one exception of Annabelle Abarca, who was a mayoral appointed incumbent, incumbent who's only had her seat for a couple of months after she replaced um, George Cardenas in the 12th Ward. She lost to a challenger. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And then another mayoral appointed candidate, Nicole Lee, in the 11th Ward is headed to a runoff and came in second. Um, first place was a Chicago police officer who got $20,000 from the FOP. And this is an important ward because, you know, Asian Amer- Asian Chicagoans for a long time have waited for representation in the city council. Uh, they got it in Nicole Lee. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen whether that seat's going to stay with her or mm-hmm. if it's going to go to one of, yeah, if it's going to go to um, the Chicago police officer who's who's giving her uh, a fight how did progressive candidates do overall? I think still still waiting to see a lot of those um a lot of 
those races are headed to a runoff because you saw well, progressive incum- incumbents um, kept their seats. You know, there are CTU and UWF candidates like Maria Haddon, Matt Martin, um, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, all of those incumbents who are who are part of the core of the city council's progressive and democratic and some of them in the Democratic Socialist Caucus uh, kept their seats last night outright. Um, but, you know, as you know, we we've had uh, a large exodus of city council uh, incumbents who decided not to run. Yeah. And those are the seats that are, you know, where we saw six, eight, ten candidates running um, and a progressive in each of those uh that are going to be headed to a runoff. So it's still, you know, Mm -hmm. it's still it's still working itself out. Professor, how would a more progressive city council with Paul Vallis as mayor shake out? (laughs) Just a a lot more friction, more Uh, animosity on the fifth floor. Absolutely. Um, So but also I would just if it's Brandon, I think uh, Brandon Johnson, I think uh, that's also going to present a challenge because if there is is, uh, numerically more progressives on the city council that uh, Yes, that perhaps can give him more support for particular types of legislation he wants to put forward. But at the same time, we see right now that the progressive uh, movement in Chicago is a bit um, in flux. And so I think the challenge for him is going to be whether or not he can hold them together. Because if you have a balkanization of the progressives at the city council level, then that could potentially uh, spell, uh, you know, um, could doom uh, Brandon Johnson on particular important initiatives that he wants to put forward. Let's turn quickly to something else on yesterday's ballot. Voters faced a brand new choice, and that was picking candidates to serve on their local police district council. Each of Chicago's 22 police districts will now have a three-person civilian oversight council made up of folks from that community. So, Alden, most of us know very little about this new government body. So briefly, you know, start with the basics there. We, we've already got this civilian office of police accountability, or COPA, as we know. How will these new district councils be different from that? Um, I, I think we're all still kind of learning the lay of the land with, with these these uh, these new bodies. Uh, but it, it was an attempt at giving uh, some type of electoral uh, voice to the yeah. public to, to be engaged. And, and so uh, and I think what we really want to know is what power will they have? So they will have the power to uh, be a part of the conversation with regard to hiring and firing of police superintendents uh, and also the leadership of, of COPA. Um, now, they don't get to make those decisions unilaterally, but but they are. It's the first time that the public will have a role in that process. So so I so see. they're they're powerful in that way. And then on a day to day basis, they are engaged with with the uh, with those police districts, uh, the leadership in those police districts about uh, more practical things in terms of strategy and and resources and other things like that. Um, but it, that in that in that way, it's it's more of a kind of a um, uh, they're part of the conversation, but not necessarily part of the decision making. Yeah. All right, Mariah, let, let's go to some of the candidates who won. There was an interesting mix of people, former teachers, we had community activists, people who work in politics. Any interesting standouts? I ha- I'm going to be honest, I have not paid attention to these races quite yet. I'm excited to dig in. Like Alden said, it it um, it provides a, uh, you know, first of its kind, really, um, civilians say in police policy to um, this this body will be tasked with pitching police policy. Um, this was one of when you talk about, you know, Lightfoot, too, and 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 her record on police accountability. This was an ordinance that was a major win for police activists look or, you know, activists looking to have a larger say in police department policy. Mm-hmm. But it was um, it was watered down over over really uh 
you know, frustrating negotiations with the Lightfoot administration. Yeah. Professor, had you looked at any of the results from the police district? Councils? No, I have not. Alden? Uh, no, I just caught wind that there were close to 20 candidates that were backed by the FOP, which is actually a pretty interesting thing. Yeah. Less than half of them were actually elected. But the fact that there will be the presence of candidates who are backed by the FOP, I think, is is an interesting point. I was looking at that last night myself and, and thought that that was going to shake out very interestingly. Um, is it appropriate to compare these police district councils to local school councils, you think? As we try to figure out what exactly they'll be doing? It is a brand new body of government that is going to require, um, you know, coverage just as, uh, you know, Chicago's school board requires coverage, just as city council requires coverage. These are going to be public meetings yeah. um, where they're, yeah, they're making, um, you know, monumental decisions or, you know, pushing forth monumental And policy. let's be honest, this this race, was, it was a difficult one for all of us to, to wrap our yeah. minds around it. It's brand new. So we'll we'll just have to see how it goes. Uh, for now, we'll, we'll put a pin in this conversation. We've been speaking with Northwestern professor Jaime Dominguez, WBEZ editor Alden Lowry, and WBEZ politics reporter Mariah Wolfel. Thank you all so much. Absolutely. Thanks, Thank you. All right. Still ahead, more results and analysis of Chicago's mayor's race, aldermanic races and more. We're going to talk with political campaign strategists about messaging and what comes next as Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson duke it out to become the next mayor of Chicago. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We fought the right fights and we put this city on a better path. No doubt about it. You turned our hope into reality because you believe that a better Chicago is possible. This city has never really been the city that works for everyone. I'm running for mayor to be the mayor of all Chicago. Regardless of who occupies the fifth floor, they will be held accountable to us in every community in Chicago. It's been the honor of a lifetime to be mayor. There's more work to do. Um, and I just want to say thank you all deeply, deeply from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Mayor Lightfoot, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, former CPS CEO Paul Vallis, Congressman Chewy Garcia. Going into yesterday's mayoral election, the polls and the pundits said they were the four candidates to watch. And now we know that Vallis and Johnson outran the pack and that the incumbent, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, will not get a second term. Now, throughout today's show, we are bringing you results and analysis, and we're looking at what comes next for Chicago. With us in studio is Connie Mixon, professor of political science and director of the Urban Studies Program at Elmhurst University. Welcome back, Professor. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Good to meet you. And Democratic political strategist Delmarie Cobb, great to have you back. Thank you. We're also taking your calls. What do you want to hear from Paul Vallis or Brandon Johnson leading up to the April 4th runoff? Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. Again, that's 866-915-WBEZ. First, I want to get your reactions to last night's results, gang. I'll start with you, Delmarie. What do you think? Well, I really wasn't surprised by the results um, because you could see it coming, um, Vallis was out in in front, and uh, Brandon Johnson was surging in the end. And so the writing was sort of on the wall, and you could tell from Lori Lightfoot's campaign, uh, not knowing who really to make the target of their attacks, uh, that she was in a dilemma. And um, unfortunately, it was one of her own creation 
because she chose to go after uh, Jesus Chewy Garcia and left Paul Vallis with an open lane. And by the time she realized he had solidified his base, it was a little bit too late. Mm. I see you nodding, Professor Mixon. (laughs) What are your thoughts? I agree. And the thing I think I would add is that running for office is a lot easier than governing. And so it's really easy for candidates to make promises. But when it comes to the day-to-day running of a city like Chicago, as divided as we are, as entrenched as we are in our legacy of systemic racism and inequality, they're tough to manage. And Mayor Lightfoot was unique in that she was an incumbent running without the support of a machine behind her. She didn't necessarily have a natural base or ward support that she could lean on. And she was a rising star in 2019. And in 2019, I kept saying she was the sleeper in the race, mm-hmm. right? Like people weren't paying a lot of attention to her, but she peaked at the right moment. She got the Sun-Times endorsement, some more money. And I think this time around, Brandon Johnson was the sleeper who just happened to peak at the right moment. And the other part of that is when you talk about the difference between um, campaigning and governing, um, when you campaign and you, uh, I use the example of Barack Obama in his first book, when he said, I'm a blank slate, people project onto me what they want. Well, that's who Lori was. She was a blank slate, people projected onto her what they wanted, what they hoped the city would be. They were tired of the machine, politics as usual. And she made all these promises, all these progressive promises, and then got in there and then fought tooth and nail against some of the progressive promises that she had made, mm-hmm. which, 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 which is why the progressives embraced her. And she did have a base initially. It was the lakefront and it was the gay yeah. community. That was her base. I mean, they were all over the place. She had a field operation, bar none, for especially for somebody who had never run for anything. I mean, I saw signs everywhere. Mm. But that was her base out there determined they were going to get one of their own in office. And the fact that they abandoned her. Somewhere along the line, that base crumbled. Exactly. Lightfoot said in her concession speech that she called Brandon Johnson and she called Paul Vallis to congratulate them for making it to the runoff. Here's a little bit of what she had to say about the outcome. Regardless of tonight's outcome, we fought the right fights and we put this city on a better path. No doubt about it. Now, as we all know in life, in the end, you don't always win every battle. But you never regret taking on the powerful and bringing in the light. So, Delmarie, the the, the mayor also touted her administration's work on uh, navigating the pandemic. Uh, She talked about making progress on public safety, investing in communities. We're thinking of, you know, the South and the West Sides, of course. What major milestones do you think people will remember her for? Well, certainly she did do uh, some good things. I mean, you can't deny that she didn't do good things. I mean, invest Southwest when you have 40 years of disinvestment in black and black and brown communities, specifically black communities on the south and west side. Uh, the fact that she realized that was something that needed to be done uh, to turn the trajectory of those uh, communities spiraling into despair, continuing to despi- spiral into despair. And um, the other things that she did is navigating a pandemic. I mean, I think she did a a great job of navigating the pandemic, given that there's no playbook for that. And uh, but, you know, 
all the things that happened as a result of that. Yeah. Those are the things that she was not prepared for. And uh, uh, she she just didn't pivot the way she needed to pivot. And along the way, unfortunately, she made a lot of enemies yeah. unnecessarily. And as you talk about the pandemic, uh, Governor J.B. Pritzker also praising Mayor Lori Lightfoot for her handling of that. He says it's been a hard four years with the COVID pandemic. And he says that he will wait to hear more about the policies of Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson before he makes any endorsement in that April runoff. Uh, Professor, Mayor Lightfoot, we know, made history in 2019. First black woman, first openly gay person leading this city. She's now also the first mayor to lose a reelection bid in 40 years uh, since Jane Byrne suffered that same defeat. What do you make of that? What is that supposed to tell us? I think it's interesting that two women (laughs) did not win re-election. I think that with Mayor Lightfoot, there are a lot of layers to peel off. I think she was criticized for being too harsh, for creating enemies. You know, Rahm Emanuel used harsher language. He certainly was harder on city council in many ways than Lori Lightfoot, but nobody dared say anything about that with him. So I think there's a lot of sexism there. I think there's layers of race. I think there's layers of sexual orientation that are all piled on top of real, real challenges. And I don't think that Mayor Lightfoot gets enough credit for breaking up machine politics in Chicago. And, you know, Chicago has been run by a machine since 1871, since the Chicago fire. It was first a Republican machine, then Mm -hmm. a Democratic machine. You know, we had periods with Harold Washington and some, some signs of reform. But she went after the machine from day one, and they're very entrenched interests with machines and those that are in power that didn't necessarily want to give up that power. So that was a constant challenge for her. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're breaking down last night's municipal election results, and we're discussing what lies ahead in the April 4th runoff. With us in studio are Elmhurst University professor Connie Mixon and political strategist Delmarie Cobb. We also want to hear from you, too. So tell us, what do you want to hear from the Johnson and Vallis campaigns in the next month or so? Join this conversation at 866-915-WBEZ. Folks, let's jump to the phones. We've got John waiting in Peterson Woods. Hey, John, welcome to Reset. Hi. uh, I have one simple question for Paul Vallis. I saw that he has embraced the lies and disinformation being spread by white supremacists about critical race theory, about what it is, where it's being taught, and what the effects are. And uh, I would really like him to come out and explain why he has chosen to embrace, you know, such a toxic set of uh, such a toxic rhetoric. So that's yeah. all. And, uh, Good yeah, question, John. We'll, we'll, we'll keep that handy. And uh, once we get Paul Vallis on the program, we did reach out. He wasn't available today. But once we do get him on the program in the coming days, that's a darn good question to ask. Any thoughts there, Delmarie? Well, he's going to have to answer a lot of questions. And, and I think it's interesting that every news outlet I've heard today since early this morning has said they've reached out to him and he wasn't available. Yeah. So okay. uh, and Brandon Johnson has made himself available all morning. So I think that's very interesting that uh, because I know I'm sure he knows that yeah. these questions are going to come. And and so everyone's on the same page as far as what our caller John was was talking about. Here's what Paul Vallis said in 2021. 
He said, quote, when you introduce a curriculum that is not only divisive, but a curriculum that further undermines the relationship of children with their parents, with their families, that's a dangerous thing. And for white parents, I mean, how are you going to discipline your child when your child comes home and your child has basically been told, you know, that their generation, their race, their parents, their grandparents, they've discriminated against others and they have somehow victimized another person's race. End quote. So we'll have much more discussion with with uh, Paul Vallis on that for sure. But uh, let's talk more about these two candidates in this April runoff. Here's a little clip of Johnson and Vallis talking to their supporters last night. You turned our hope into reality because you believe that a better Chicago is possible. But guess what we get to do now, y'all? We get to turn the page of the politics of old. The city has never really been the city that works for everyone. But it will be when I am mayor. So what do you think, Professor? What put Vallis and Johnson at the top of the pack? And how much does name recognition factor in here? Well, I think what we're seeing in Chicago, we're also seeing nationwide, is this deep divide between progressives and conservatives. And on full display in Chicago's election last night is a tale of two cities. We talk about a tale of two cities, Chicago being two cities, one for the wealthy, downtown, the elite, and then also the one of neighborhoods. And we have candidates that are going to represent both interests. We couldn't have starker differences between two candidates than what we have between they are Ballas on two and- total ends of different ends of the spectrum, aren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. They are. And I think importantly, turnout was low. And when turnout is low, the most passionate voters show up. And and also early voting was high. And yeah. so that indicates to me that people had already made up their minds. Yeah, you're saying day of turnout was right. low. Yeah. It, so, but I mean, overall, we're still looking at low 30%, same as 2019. Yeah. I mean, these are huge elections. This is where democracy happens in cities. We ought to have much higher voter turnout across the city. My own 19th ward had a 55% voter turnout, but for the most part voted for for Vallis. But when we have low voter tur- turnout overall, that plays to the extremes. And people made up their mind early. People for Vallis made up their mind early. Johnson people made out, up their mind early. And Johnson had ground game. He had a really strong ground game to get out the vote, and I think that explains a lot um, for why we have these two candidates going into an April runoff. And and Delmarie, we we know something else they differ on is education, right? Vallis supports school choice and and vouchers for charter schools, while Johnson's been uh, a public school and teacher advocate. Some of their strategies for empowering students don't sound too dissimilar, though. Let's listen. So one of the first things that that I'm going to do as the mayor of the city of Chicago is um, we're going to have the most robust youth hiring program that this city has seen in a generation. Um, I'm confident that we can double the amount of young people that we can hire, particularly between the ages of 16 and 24. We will do universal work study. Every union we have contracts with will create work study, paid work study jobs for the kids. So who's going to come out on top, you think, when it comes to education? Well, Paul Vallis has a history, and a lot of people don't know the history because they don't remember when he was the CEO of Chicago schools. And during his time as CEO, he embraced small schools. 
he expanded charter schools, and he created contract schools. And all of those things starve neighborhood schools. And so you draw a line between the policies that he initiated and Rahm Emanuel closing 50 schools. Mm. And there's a direct there's a direct line from one to the other. And so that's the history that people have to be told and reminded of um, because uh, many people, unless you're like us, who are fanatical and know all of this stuff, <laughs> you know, they don't remember. And so, and certainly younger voters don't know anything about it. All mm-hmm. they know is, oh, well, he headed the schools. And that works to his advantage. Exactly. Um, Mayor Lightfoot was particularly hard on both of them, I think, during her campaign. How likely do you think it is that she's going to get behind either one during this runoff? You're shaking your head, Professor. It's Not hard, likely? It, it, it's hard to tell. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Um, I think she's probably going to stay out of it for a while. You know, we've talked about Chicago being so splintered politically because of race. In this election, we were race was part of it, but it was also ideology. Mm-hmm. The progressive vote was so splintered. And so when we look at Ballas, I mean, he won by a lot, right? Like right. 70,000 votes. We look at 2019, there were 10,000 votes around that separated Preckwinkle and and Lightfoot. And so he's got a huge lead going into it. So is Johnson able to pull all of the other candidates? I don't know where Willie Wilson voters go. That's still up in the air. But yeah. the other progressive candidates behind him. And I think it certainly helps Johnson if yeah. Lightfoot were to I mean, endorse if, him. And if no Lightfoot endorsement, where, where who do you think Lightfoot supporters are going to vote for? I think they're probably going to be split. They're going to be um, yeah. Because you're going to have, you know, some of the supporters that she had early on uh, came out of those who supported the police. Yeah. Uh, she had uh, the 19th Ward uh, and she had Napolitano and, and uh, Spasato. And uh, and so they left her. And so you're going to see a split in terms of her um, supporters unless she comes out and says, um, you know, I'm going to support Brandon or I'm going to support Vallis. I can't imagine her supporting Vallis, though, not if she really wants to protect whatever legacy she has to protect going forward. Let's uh, take a pause in this conversation. We've been talking with Elmhurst University Professor Connie Mixon and political strategist Delmarie Cobb. They're going to stick around. And up ahead, WBEZ's Patrick Smith will join us to talk about what was one of the top issues among voters and candidates this election, crime and public safety. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're taking a look at the results from what will surely go down as a historic election in Chicago, as Lori Lightfoot becomes the first mayor in decades to lose a re-election bid for a second term. We're going to focus now on what ended up being the top issue for many voters, which was crime. Now, a recent poll commissioned by WBEZ, Chicago Sun-Times, Telemundo, Chicago and NBC5, it showed that nearly two thirds of Chicago voters feel unsafe. So here to discuss the role that crime played in last night's election is WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Sasha. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Still here are uh, Elmhurst University professor Connie Mixon and political strategist Delmarie Cobb. We are also still taking your calls. Our phone lines are open and we want to know from you, what do you want to hear from the candidates before that April runoff? Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. That's 866-915-WBEZ. Let's hear from Lynn in Buena Park, who's been waiting on the line. Hey, Lynn, welcome to the show. 
Well, thank you for taking my call. Sure. What um, do you want to know from this, these candidates? Well, <laughs> that's an interesting point. Um, first of all, I have expectations of both of them. And I'm sorry to say that my concern is that my expectations may be met, especially on the part of Paul Vallis. Um, disinvestment in schools, in public schools, is the same as disinvestment in neighborhoods. And I really fully expect Johnson to live up to our expectations to really integrate this city. He said it's all races and different um, uh, people of all ages coming together to create a city that we would all like to have. Now, you can frighten us lakefront liberals really easily by having crime in our neighborhoods, and that's what's been happening. But this is not the time for us to retreat. It's time for us to put our money where our mouths have been. I have somebody living in a tent right across from my building. People express concern about that person. Mm -hmm. I want something done about it. Yeah. So I think we can easily frighten people away from um, Johnson, and I don't think that we should allow ourselves to be frightened by um, what is going on. There is a deep history in this, in this country and in this city of racism, and that's what you're seeing when crime becomes the major issue for white people. Lynn, thanks for, for calling it and sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate it. Well, let's let's continue the crime discussion here. Patrick, I want to have you put things in context for us, because when we talk about crime in Chicago, what do we need to keep in mind? I mean, it's it's all over national television when it comes to this city, right? There are a lot of numbers, a lot of comparisons. Mm. Yeah, it's all over national television. It's all over local television. And, and I mean, crime means a lot of different things. You know, there's a lot of Burglaries, crime, sexual assault, and, and I'm going to do something that we do in the media a lot, which is sort of reduce it all to gun violence and murders because that can be a quick – well, because it's an incredibly important issue that, that confronts us here in Chicago. And focusing just on gun violence and murders, we are actually right now in the midst of a decrease. We're, we're, our numbers of shootings and murders are falling down from where they were in 2021, but also 2021 was really, really high for gun violence, the highest it had been in decades – and even with our, you know, we've been falling over the last year plus, mm -hmm. uh, we're still higher now as far as shootings and murders than we were before the pandemic. Uh, I think one other thing that's worth sort of discussing is that one other thing that shot up in 2020 uh, and is now decreasing, to be clear, was carjackings. And I think that that's something that uh, it's not the most common crime, but it's something that I think really stuck in people's minds because it's a it's a crime that a stranger commits on you. Mm -hmm. It feels random to, to the person who it happens to. And I do think that that carjackings, which again are falling from where they were in 2020 and 2021, I think that that was um, something that, that really, you know, enervated people and got people sort of, sort of fearful in areas that actually don't have high levels of violence and crime. Yeah. You asked about context, and I'm sorry, I've been talking for a long time here, but I do, no, I do want to put, I want to, I want to point out a couple things for context. The first is that cities across the country saw a rise in gun violence in 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic after the George Floyd uprisings. And two, there really are no good old days when it comes to Chicago gun violence. That's the other thing I want to point out. That's actually a line I stole from my criminal justice desk colleague, Chip Mitchell. <laughs> and his reporting shows that over the past 60 years, Chicago's averaged almost 700 murders a year. We haven't had fewer than 500 murders since 2015. So... You're never going to catch me saying that the level of violence we have right now is okay. 
it's horrible. People are dying. It's a really urgent issue. Yeah. But also it's ahistorical to say that this is a new problem that was created in the last four years. And it's inaccurate to say that Chicago is unique in, in the way that gun violence has gone up uh, since 2020. Four years ago, Paul Vallis ran for mayor, got only 5% of the vote, but it, it was a different story this time. His message remained constant, as, as you, you mentioned earlier, Professor. Uh, from the public safety first signs behind his podium at campaign headquarters to what he told supporters last night. Let's listen. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. And it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. What do you think his uh, reversal of fortune says about where Chicago voters are right now, Delmarie? Well, I think it's, you know, it's very interesting because I've been talking about it. Uh, when he ran for governor in 2020, I mean, in 2002 and and lost. And then he ran as on Pat Quinn's t- ticket as an incumbent. Uh, he wasn't the incumbent. He was a lieutenant governor. He lost in 2014. He ran for mayor in 2019, came in ninth. And then suddenly now he's the savior of Chicago. And so he's managed to <laughs> leverage three rejections into a win. And uh, that certainly doesn't happen very often. Um, and you have to wonder why. I, I mean, we do know why. And your caller said it, really. It's because the, the white community is experiencing crime for the first time at this level. And they haven't done it before. And so now it's a terrible thing. But it's been a terrible thing. And, and as Patrick was saying, um, we've had crime like this for years. Yeah. The problem, part of the biggest problem is the solve rate. When people can get away with murder, there is no incentive to not kill if that's what you're prone to do. So where's the deterrent if I can get away with it? And so when you have a solve rate that was in the low figures, then that is why people are committing crimes. And we have to address that. And so we have to get to the root causes. And and what I said uh, it, last night after he gave his speech about civil, it's a civil right and all public safety, is that all these problems that he's talking about, as he said, they didn't just start with Lori Lightfoot, but where has he been on them? Mm-hmm. Why wasn't he speaking out? Why are we just hearing about it? Because he didn't want to upset a, a Richard M. Daly. He didn't want to upset a Rahm Emanuel, but it's okay to upset a black woman. Interesting. Uh, Professor Vallis, seen as the more conservative law and order candidate in, in this field of nine, endorsed by the police union, got family who are, you know, in the police department, strong ally uh, of law enforcement. How much of that helped him shoot to the top? Oh, I think it ha- helped him significantly. And as Delmarie said, he's had lots of practice and he finally hit on a message that worked. Mm-hmm. And this is a message that is straight out of con- the conservative playbook, right? You go after crime, you go after crime. And, you know, there's also some dog whistles that go along with Paul Vallis's messaging that come right out of, you know, a Southern strategy, Richard Nixon. This isn't anything new. I mean, we're just recycling the old playbook over and over again. And when we talk about crime, yes, Chicago has significant crime, but we're not even the worst when we look at per capita crime, right? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. 
So per capita, um, we're not terrible. But the crime message sells. It's it's sold in New York with uh, Mayor Eric Adams. That's what he ran on. Right. And I think that's a message for Democratic mayors across the country is that they are going to have to lean into the public safety crime message. Yeah, set the stage for us, Patrick. They've got uh, very different perspectives on how to deal with crime. Vallis and Johnson, walk us through. Yeah, it's interesting because actually on certain policy questions, their, their, their answers are pretty similar about sort of what they would do. They they both say they would not reallocate resources from CPD to address so-called root causes of crime. They both said they would shift CPD deployment so that more officers are working when crime, when violence happens most often. Mm-hmm. They're both looking to replace Superintendent David Brown. No, that's for sure. They, they were both very said, vocal about that. <laughs> they both said they want to limit canceled days off and overtime for Chicago police officers. And and to Del Marie's point, they both say they want to have more CPD detectives and that CPD needs to do a much better job solving shootings and murders. But they are very different in rhetoric. They're very different in how they talk about the issues of crime and what it might take to solve. And I think the biggest difference or one of the biggest differences is that is that while they both said they wouldn't cut CPD's budget, Johnson has also said he would not increase the Chicago Police Department's budget, that CPD needs to be more efficient, and that the safest communities, he says, are not the ones that are the most policed. And I should say if, if he wins and sticks to that – that you know that would be a first time in a long time that we didn't see an increase the, the CPD but not the first time in a long time because actually there wasn't an increase in I think it was 2020 but I should say over the last couple of years of Lightfoot's administration and and before that you just saw the CPD budget go up and up every year meanwhile Vallis he's pledged to hire more police officers he wants to add almost 2000 more police officers and along with other proposals he's got he would it would definitely require increasing the police budget we're already at almost 2 billion dollars for the police budget wow. as it stands right now you're listening to Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are breaking down last night's municipal election results, and we're discussing what lies ahead in the April 4th runoff. With us in studio is WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. Also here, Elmhurst University professor Connie Mixon and political strategist Delmarie Cobb. We want to hear from you, too. Still time for you to join the conversation at 866-915-WBEZ. Let's hear from Jeff in the southwest side who wants to weigh in on this crime discussion. Hey, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Hi. What are your thoughts? Doing well. What are your thoughts? I'm a a dentist, and and my my partner and I specialize in treatment of developmentally disabled adults, most of which are poor, most of which are black and brown. Our office is on the southwest side. We're at Archer and Harlem. And um, there there, there are very few dentists that do what we do, mainly because of financial barriers. Um, People who who are developmentally disabled very often are on very limited incomes, cannot afford dentistry. Dentistry in general is pricey. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we, uh, we we discount our fees about 50%, and we uh, try to help the people that we have been helping for many years since we were both involved when Easter Seals of uh, Metropolitan Chicago had a grant from the state, which was cut. Right. Um, and and you're, you're saying as well, Jeff, that, that crime is playing a role in patients not seeking care in your neighborhood? Is that right? Well, well the patients cannot come by themselves. So there are caregivers and many uh, dis- developmentally disabled adults have 
caregivers that are in their 60s, sometimes in their 70s, and the suburban folks don't want to come to Chicago because it's so dangerous. Or I have people say, I'm not coming downtown. Mm, yeah. Well, we're not downtown. We're in a relatively safe area. We've got a lot of police officers, a lot of firemen. Uh, it's, um, it's a safe, you know, relatively yeah. safe neighborhood. Um, and, but the thing is, if this is hurting their, it's hurting their, the, you know, patients, and, and if they're not coming down to take care of their loved one with a service that's very hard to get, extremely yeah. difficult, they're not going to go come into the city for, you know, dinner or a play or, or a, or a, right. a museum. These people are afraid. They're afraid yeah, it's a, it's a domino effect, Jeff. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that to, to our attention. I hear that all the time, uh, you know, people not going downtown, not going to mm-hmm. certain areas because of, of crime. You've spent the last year, Patrick, uh, examining alternative ways to deal with violence in this city. This is for the WBEZ podcast Motive. Any lessons for these candidates? Yeah, I spent time with, with community violence uh, intervention workers, people who are trying to prevent violence in their in their own communities. And, and what I found is there's a lot of smart and dedicated folks who can have immediate impacts on the people that they work with. But that also the level of investment we have right now is just like nowhere near the level of need in the communities that have the most violence. And I think also in this, this conversation that we're having about politics, I think – in the communities or among the people who, for whom like violence is right around them, it, they, they sort of live in the midst of it, they feel very disconnected. I don't think anyone you, – you're not going to feel – no one's going to be surprised by this, but they feel very disconnected from the political process. Yeah. Don't have a sense that anybody really understands what, they, what their issues are or, or is really fighting for them. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think you know, their, their view of these, these uh, political discussions is pretty nuanced, which is to say – there's a real belief of there's no consequences for people who shoot guns at other people. No one gets caught. There needs to be harsher consequences, but also not an embrace of you – know, there's certainly skepticism about the police department and not an embrace of of the sort of broken windows uh, theory of policing that we've seen Paul Vallis put forward. Yeah. OK, so question for all of you before we, we take a pause in this conversation. As Chicagoans try to figure out which philosophy of policing and, and crime prevention – makes the most sense. Do you think that we'll continue to make national headlines about how voters want leaders to deal with crime? I'll start with you, Delmarie. Oh, I mean, that's the number one issue. This is already a national story. Uh, people are covering it from everywhere uh, because they want to see where is the philosophical ideology uh, of this city and, and the fact that it's a microcosm of the nation. And is 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 the is the approach going to be law and order? And as you said, the broken window theory, stop and frisk, which people don't want. And the irony of that is yesterday we were also voting for police district councils. Right. And so that's the irony of yesterday and what that's going to mean and what all of us who are progressives hope for. So do you want a progressive mayor leading that? something so new that has so many possibilities or do you want a conservative mayor leading that? Uh, and that was also part of Lori's problem is she fought that tooth and nail because it was, oh, it was too much power. Yeah. So it's going to be very interesting to see which way we go. But as you said, those people who are victims of crime the most often, even though they want crime to end, they don't want over-policing. 
And and yeah. and that's so that's the dilemma. Are we still going to take over that national conversation, Professor, when it comes to crime? Oh, absolutely. And Chicago has this long history of being associated with crime. Go back to Al Capone. Right. So we've mm. got this long history of being associated with crime. What I find interesting is that the loudest voices on public safety right, are often coming from white voters in some of the safest neighborhoods. And the voters that you're talking about, about Patrick, like they have a much more nuanced view of, of crime and what it really takes to, to, to reduce it. I mean, economic development, jobs, education, but we've disinvested in it. And I'd like somebody to make the, the connection between our disinvestment in schools in Chicago and where we see the highest levels of crime mm-hmm. and ask that of Paul Vallis. where's the link between the schools that have closed or where we've gone to charter schools and where we're also seeing crime? Well, Patrick, you can maybe ask that of Paul (laughs) Vallis. I I look forward to that. (laughs) But I'll give you the last word in this conversation. Yeah, as far as the national, you know, it always uh, makes me very nervous when the national media is talking about Chicago. Uh, It's not when they call you and ask you to do uh, (laughs) ask you to appear on their network. At least I'll know what I'm going to say, which that doesn't mean I'm I'm right. But at least I can feel confident in what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what Chicago voters will do, and I, and I don't know what the right choice is here. My feeling is that nationally, if Paul Vallis is elected, that will get a bunch of national attention about how voters want more law and order. And if Brandon Johnson is elected, that will not get much national attention at all. Right. That's WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks so much. Sticking with us, Elmhurst University professor Connie Mixon and political strategist Delmarie Cobb. Coming up, more on what lies ahead for city council. The legislative body has seen a lot of turnover. and Many races are headed to runoff as well on April 4th. So we'll discuss that just ahead on Reset. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Turning our attention now to the results of Chicago's aldermanic races. Most incumbent aldermen are either holding on to their seats or they're advancing to a runoff in April, while nearly a quarter of the city's wards are guaranteed to have a new member on city council. So what is next for how things are run at City Hall? We're still with Elmhurst University professor Connie Mixon and political strategist Delmarie Cobb. So we have seen, as I mentioned, this large exodus of incumbent Alderman. Delmarie, what kind of impact do you think this will have on city politics? We're losing a lot of institutional knowledge, don't you think? I mean, we are, certainly. uh, But again, I'm happy uh, because it takes us, for me, it was the hope of getting closer to a progressive city council so that the city council returns to what its original intention was, which is strong city council, weak mayor. And for years, we've been strong mayor, weak city council. And so the magic number is 26, you know, and the closer we get to 26, the happier I am in terms (laughs) of uh, progressive uh, aldermen. And so that exodus meant that there were open seats that, you know, we could actually change things. So I think it's interesting. uh, So you think this makes way for a refresh Except, of the city council. Ex, yes, I do. Except you had the uh, the get things done pack that uh, p- was able to put millions into trying to make sure we kept the status quo. They claimed that they were going after socialists, uh, uh, but they were actually going after progressives uh, because there there's no such thing as socialists. Yeah. Uh, and most people don't even know what that means. Uh, they you know, they they've uh, associated it with communism. And that's not what it means at all. So 
it's just interesting that there's so much money for the status quo versus having a city that really works for everybody. Professor, you brought up earlier in our conversation the the political machine. Mm -hmm. Do you think the machine will continue to have a grip on the council? I don't think so. I think there were real changes under the Lightfoot administration. And when we analyze voting blocks within the city council, we see a whole bunch of different voting blocks. And Lori Lightfoot didn't necessarily have a solid voting block for every single vote. So we can go back to Richard J. Daly, Richard M. Daly, Rahm Emanuel, all had really strong rubber stamp city councils because they controlled the levers of the machine, whether it was the precincts or the wards or, in Rahm Emanuel's case, the money. Lori Lightfoot didn't have those same levers, for Mm -hmm. sure, but she was able to cobble together enough votes for nearly every one of her policy proposals and budgets. So she had a core of about 19 older persons who voted with her, and then she could usually count on committee chairpersons to vote with her as well. And what I've always told my students is that this is a good thing. This is our city council is acting more like a deliberative democracy than it has in my entire lifetime. I mean, I've lived I mean, I lived through machine politics and I lived through council wars. And this is the past four years. We've had a deliberative democracy where things are really debated. So. We will see where things end up, but I think that we're certainly seeing a shift in city council to the left. What that means for who the next mayor is, is anybody's guess. Here's another shift. Ed Burke, who's been (laughs) a notorious figure uh, on the city council for a half a century. I mean, let that that sink in. Uh, But as we know, he's retiring in the first Latina, Halu Gutierrez. One, and she will represent that ward. So, I mean, first of all, can you believe his tenure is over? Oh, I know. I know. (laughs) Nobody ever thought it. Do you think this will lessen uh, corruption in city politics, Professor? No. Um, Chicago (laughs) is notorious for corruption, right? We've had since 1970, Alderman indicted. We are the most corrupt city in the entire country when we look at federal judicial decisions. But we're... There are ways to go about this. There are there are measures, there are safeguards that we can put in place that we've started to do under the Lightfoot administration, like getting rid of aldermatic prerogative privilege. Mm-hmm. We need to go a lot further. We need to give the inspector general a lot more power. And, you know, Chicago, we ought to be looking at suburbs, too. I mean, I know that's beyond the scope of our discussion, but there's a lot more corruption happening in our suburbs right now than what we're seeing in the city. Yeah. Well, Delmarie, any sense of how far endorsements went in in helping candidates win. I'm thinking of endorsements from uh, the Chicago Police Union and uh, groups like United Working Families, for instance. Well, both of those were trying to make sure that they got their numbers up. And uh, I believe um, um, the... um, United Working Families, I mean, she's Emma Ty. She said, I want to win all the seats I can win. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. And and uh, and rightly so, because um, you do want change. The, the, I just want to go step back for a second. The problem Lori Lightfoot made in terms of trying to change things was that she went around the elected officials. It's one thing to say, I'm going to get rid of uh, automatic prerogative. It's another to go to people in the community who are 
just ordinary citizens, try to elevate them by fiat to have the same power as the aldermen and then downgrade the person who actually was elected by the people who are in the ward. And that's what she did, as, and, and all of them resented it, which is also why so many of them stepped down and mm-hmm. also why they turned against her, yeah. because that is not the way to go. Well, here's the thing. We, we know Lightfoot appointed four alder people in her tenure who ran to keep their seats. One lost, three made it to the runoff. How did having a connection to her work out for them? Oh, it always is. That's always a detriment. Whenever you are appointed by a mayor, and especially if the mayor, I mean, whether it was Daly or Rahm Emanuel, they all, you had to carry that jacket, wear that jacket, whether you wanted to wear it or not. It didn't mean that you necessarily were going to be an extension of that mayor, Mm -hmm. but you were tainted regardless. But Rahm could give you the money. (laughs) Exactly. Well, speaking of uh, in- endorsements from mayoral candidates, uh, Congressman Chuy Garcia, I mean, he endorsed a number of aldermanic hopefuls. Do you think that had an impact, Professor? To some extent in the Latino community, I think that it probably did. Um, what I found interesting was the Democratic Socialists endorsed another five or six candidates, and it looks like maybe only only one of them will make it to even a runoff. Um, So that has me questioning the power of the Democratic Socialists on city council and where we go from there. Yeah. But that was also the power of the get things done. Yeah. uh, Get stuff done pack. Pack. Yeah. What do you anticipate, Professor, seeing in the runoff elections in April? Ooh, I think that this is going to be a... An ideological fight. You couldn't have, I I said this earlier, you couldn't have starker differences. And each camp's voters are motivated and people are going to take sides. And does it come down to the FOP versus the CTU and who's got the best ground game and who can get the vote out? Um, And where all those progressive voters go, do they all line up behind Brandon Johnson? If they do, I think that helps. If they don't, Uh I think that benefits Paul Vallis. A lot of Chicagoans, uh, they want to see change and they want to see it now, right? What can older people do in the first few weeks or months? Do they need to wait for committee assignments, you think, Delmarie? When they, when they, the new... uh, City Council takes office? The new batch, well, yeah. You see, and even that is interesting because, again, committee assignments have always been uh, rewards. And so mayors have always used them to get people to do what it is they want them to do. Mm-hmm. And and instead of having a d- democratic process uh, like the, the Congress, which is through attrition, you know, after you've been there for so long, just think Tony Pretwinkle was in the City Council for 20 years and never had a committee. Leslie Harrison was in the city council for 20 years and never headed a committee. And so that just shows you because they weren't a reliable yes vote, then they weren't worthy to be a committee chair. So let's hope that whoever gets in there has a little bit more uh, democratic process for committee chair. So we may have to wait to see that process. Well, in the interest of time, I want you to give me some quick responses to these here. Uh, What kind of working relationship do you think a Mayor Paul Vallis will have with the city council, Professor? Well, I think it'll be adversarial on, on many fronts, particularly yeah. given the side, the block of, of the Progressive Caucus plus the Democratic Socialist, yeah. the Black Caucus, the Latino Caucus. I think he faces an uphill battle with city council. 
What about you, Delmarie? I think it's just going to be more of the same. I think we're going to have another version of uh, Richard M. Daly and, and Rahm Emanuel. Mm. So I think it's going to be more of the same. What about uh, a Mayor Brandon Johnson? How will he work with City Council, Professor? I think he probably works well with the Dem- with the Progressive Caucus and the Democratic Socialists. And is, but do we end up in council wars again too? Mm. Right? Like, do the conservatives uh, in, in in the city council oppose him yeah. on issues? And is it enough to make a difference? It's really hard to tell because there's so many seats still outstanding in yeah. city council to make an accurate prediction, I think. It's going to be an but interesting few weeks. And the difference between that city council for council wars and this city council is that, first of all, there's not enough of them. Right. And secondly, they don't have the power that uh, Eddie Verdoliak and Eddie Burke and, and uh, yeah. Dick Mill had. Yeah. Right. We'll leave it there. That is political strategist Delmarie Cobb and Elmhurst University professor Connie Mixon. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, before we wrap, we did have a few callers who weren't able to uh, get through, but we will give them the last word anyway. We asked folks what they wanted to see from the two candidates ahead of the April 4th runoff. And Morris in Rogers Park said he wants to see Vallis take the $2 billion. He wants to add to the police budget and use instead use it to uplift disadvantaged communities because he says that would help lower crime faster. And Marie in... Chicago says she's curious to find out how Brandon Johnson's tax plan, which would have a tax on companies with more than 50 people, how that addresses keeping companies in the city and not chasing them out. Thank you to those listeners who weighed in. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and have a great day. We'll meet again tomorrow.